It is time for Plan B. It has been too long since there was a Plan B. It has been too long since I said these immortal words. Hello, Rebecca Davis. Hello, John, and what a joy to have you back with us. Thank you. It really is. There was a a devastating gap where your John-sized presence should have been in all our lives. I, I am going to uh, clip that and I'm going to try and sell it as a non-fungible token. I wonder what Bill did <laughs> for that. John, I was so devastated by your absence that I too fell ill in a kind of sympathy show. So I won't even try to compete with yours as mine was a very, very non-serious case of tonsillitis inherited from my child. But I'm just very glad, very, very glad to hear you behind the mic again. Thanks, Rebecca. Nisfas, terrible stories in the media recently about Nisfas again not doing its job and the, the, the terrible consequences that has had for students who should be getting Nisfas funding. Yes, I've been thinking about this a lot, John. Last week was World Hunger Week, and, you know, there are just tales of these students literally not having anything to eat, no food, no shelter, just being left destitute until their university funding arrives. And what this suggests to me most strongly, John, is the consequences of tertiary funding becoming effectively another social grant stream. Because if you finish school in this country and you have nothing and you can't find a job, You have to apply to a tertiary institution, whether you actually want to study or not, because that is the only available funding stream to you. And what this does, it seems to me, John, is completely pervert the purpose of higher education, because we see institutions being flooded by students and applications, not necessarily because they're so desperate to learn more about a particular subject, although some of them obviously are, but also because they need food and accommodation. I mean, that is a very, very peculiar position for universities to be in, that they are kind of the means to an end. And the the end is literal, the most basic forms of shelter. It seems to me that this is something we absolutely have to address. It's not what universities are for, it's not what technicons are for. And perhaps a mechanism like a basic income grant could go some way towards addressing that, you know, if there were alternatives for job le- for school leavers, if there were other forms of money available, perhaps they wouldn't have to throw themselves on the mercy of NISFAS to this degree. Is there, is there evidentiary backing for your, for your view that a large number of people who are applying to universities are doing so primarily to have some kind of sustenance for the next few years of their otherwise miserable-seeming lives? Well, it's obviously hard to separate, John. I mean, going to university in itself brings with you certain advantages later in life, one hopes. But the mere fact that we have heard these stories of students, in one case at least, dying because they could not access their NISFAS funding means that it is a desperate, desperate situation, that that is your means to food and shelter. And, I mean, it seems to me that this is an absolutely untenable situation. What do you have an idea of what the what the numbers are the rands and cents numbers um, because you know what kind of social grant if 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 there's a kind of basic income grant social grant is extended is it going to be in the same ballpark as what NISFAS grantees are getting uh, sufficiently close enough for them to say you know what I actually actually don't want to go to university and I can use this money to try and set up some side hustle in the township where I live. 
No, absolutely not. I mean, I don't know how much NISFAS is, but I do know that all the discussions around a basic income grant are in the ballpark of sort of five to six hundred rand a month, which is absolutely nothing, obviously. And Don, I don't want to be misunderstood here because there's a chance that my argument is interpreted to just be an elitist saying, let's stop so many people, so many of the masses applying for university. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there is clearly a desperation here for food and yeah, money yeah. That, that means that universities are being used for that purpose. I, I am very interested to know what your take is on Naomi Osaka and her brief appearance at this year's French Open, the reasons for her withdrawal and all of the stuff around that. You know, John, everyone has given their opinion on this, including me, I'm about to, but I thought one of the best takes was in The Guardian, where Jonathan Liu wrote, what does it mean if one of the best tennis players in the world would rather not play tennis than deal with press conferences? Doesn't that suggest that we as journalists have something to ask ourselves, you know? And the first point I want to say, John, is that in defense of journalists, I think, you know, in, in the wake of, of Osaka's decision, there's been a lot of these kind of examples of terrible questions that sports players get asked in press conferences, often offensive. You know, the other day, the, the young tennis prodigy Coco Golf was asked um, in a press conference, you're often compared to Venus and Serena Williams. I suppose it's because you're black. Obviously, a ridiculous statement, but many of these statements are made by journalists whose first language is not English. And I think that is a point that's being overlooked, that often there is a genuine language barrier in terms of the back and forth between journalists and sports people. But look, the argument, as I understand it from people like Piers Morgan, etc., is that sports people are so overpaid, surely the least they can do is play the game. And this is part of the game. This is part of your job. You sit there. And you deal with these questions. But, you know, who is being served by this? Are journalists being served by these press conferences? Because they all get access then to the same banal comments. There's no, um, there's no benefit in it for any individual journalist because you're all getting the same information at the same time. You're not getting an exclusive. There's, the public, in fact, is often getting access to it at the same time as you through the airing of these. Having said that, the general public, as far as I know, does not have a huge interest in watching press conferences unless there's some drama in them. So there's a real incentive there, it must be admitted, for journalists to stir up drama. This is why tennis players so often get asked about conflict with other tennis players, about imagined rivalries and so forth. Because, you know, what will go viral, what will be on the news is a clip of a sports person storming out of a press conference. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the YouTube video is Serena Williams breaking down in tears after being asked uh, about a loss that she has just suffered. The YouTube right. video is never Serena Williams being um, being quietly confident about a victory she's just achieved. Or being asked an interesting question about her form. Yeah. But what it seems to me mostly, John, is that athletes increasingly would rather talk to the public themselves without the mediation of the press. And this is not just restricted to the sports world. We see it increasingly in other spheres of life as well. Politically, for instance, I don't know if you've noticed how the DA in this country is launching a whole range of media products at the moment. I just read about a new one today. Talk shows and panel discussions. And that's because they want to make the media themselves. They don't want to be filtered through a media 
which may be biased against them, as John Cena has often suggested, in the same way that athletes don't want to have to go through journalists. They do want to stick on Instagram and give themselves to the public in the way that they have full control of. And it seems to me that this is an issue that is going to spread much more widely than sports and will demand nothing less than a, you know, a reconstitution of what the purpose of journalists is. And what do you think the purpose of journalists will end up being? Well, well, our job should be not simply to to be stenographers. For me to say, Naomi Osaka said, I love playing Serena. Our job should always be to critically analyze what they say and to filter out the nonsense and to say, well, actually, she may have said that, but that's not true. And this is true for politicians as well. And so our job, you know, it seems to me will have to be to do less of the mindless reporting of press conferences and a lot more of the critical analysis of, of, of that kind of stuff. But when the owners of the tournaments, the Grand Slams, want the media conferences because they believe their sponsors want them and maybe their sponsors tell the owners of the tournaments that they want the news conferences, then what does one do in the short term if Naomi Osaka decides she wants to play Wimbledon or she wants to play the US Open later this year? What what is done about Naomi Osaka and news conferences, media conferences, 30 minutes after the end of a game. I mean, should there be some kind of veto available to journalists as per the UN? Where they, I mean, available to the sports people where they can simply say, you know, I have three vetoes on questions in this press conference and I'm going to use it on that, on that, on that. The danger, of course, is that then they only ever get the most boring of questions. And as was also pointed out in another piece of analysis. It's only thanks to press conferences that we know, for instance, that another tennis player, Alexander Zarev, was accused of terrible physical and emotional abuse against by his ex-girlfriend. So it's not the case that athletes are every time subjected to these terribly unfair or racist or bigoted questions. Sometimes they are legitimate areas of concern that the public you know, has every right to hear about that can only be aired through press conferences. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe this, I, mean, I, I think that your, your colleague at Daily Maverick, Craig Ray, and his column on this issue today, he, he used a, a good analogy. He talked about a Hashim Amla who didn't want to wear the Castle Lager logo on his test shirt because as a devout Muslim, he didn't want to be associated with alcohol. He didn't put out a tweet saying, I'm not going to wear it. He, he or his management team or the two of them together went to Cricket South Africa and South African Brews said, this is my position. This is why I don't want to do it. And quietly, out of the glare of public spotlight and social media frenzy, an agreement was reached. And look, it's more difficult now because this has, there's, there's, there's so much hot air and genuine flame around this now that I don't know what kind of compromise is possible. But mental health in sport is a really serious issue. And there's got to be some kind of, you know, some kind of short, medium term way of finding a compromise. In the case of Naomi, that, that compromise might be just let her pay the fines. I mean, she is that rich. But the problem with that, of course, is that it means that it sets up this two-tier system where players who can afford it can opt out of that particular grilling and those who can't cannot, which is manifestly unjust as well. I don't know. There is a lot of showboating around this. And as someone said as well, the, the, the fact that the likes of Piers Morgan are saying, you know, she must be made to do it when uh, it suggested that white, middle-aged male TV presenters have the thinnest 
skins of all and would never subject themselves to being forced to be questioned on their work publicly time and time again. I mean, I don't think any of us would relish that opportunity, in fairness. So it's not hard to feel empathy. Yeah, how do you, how long, oh, oh sorry, I, I'm, I'm, what would the badge of honour look like that I absolutely deserve because my lawn is brown? It's, it's John, so brown that it cannot, in truth, be called a lawn anymore. Is it also long? Long. Yes, as in long grass. Oh, no, 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 there, there's no grass. It is, ah. it is sand. It is just sand. John, with, with, that is, with four or five weeds. That makes you an ecological hero. You should take your place alongside the Swedish lass, Greta, leading the marches. The Royal Horticultural Society has urged homeowners, this is what John's alluding to, to get away from the idea that your lawn has to be green. Because it turns out that even in as water-sodden a country as England, they may be facing water shortages, albeit, I must say, in 25 years, which really made me laugh, I must say, John. But the Royal Horticultural Society says, let's stop thinking of lawns as things that have to be green, please. Brown lawns should be seen as an ecological badge of honour, and in particular, long brown lawns, actually, because mowing is apparently one of the most ecologically destructive things you can do when it comes to biodiversity. They suggest that everyone should be cultivating these long brown lawns and that when you see one, your response should be one of appreciation and respect. Or that the alternative, which I don't know, I'm not enough of a gardener, which is to say not one at all, to know if this would work in South Africa. But they suggest creating a patchwork lawn where you dig up your lawn entirely and replace it with squares of low-growing plants like clover and buttercups. That sounds idyllic. Very English, like a kind of meadow. Would that work in South Africa, John? Is our soil conducive to such... You're asking the wrong person about our soil quality. But, I mean, one day when I have the motivation and the money, I want to turn the wasteland, which is my backyard, which once was a lawn and which is a lawn no longer, I want to turn it into some kind of zen space. I want different colours and sizes and shapes of rocks and paths between them and then succulents either planted in the ground or in plots or in pots, whichever is uh, botanically more advisable for the soil in my area. And I think that you know, particularly the, the succulents, the, the fet worm, the very South African thing, uh, that's what we should be aiming for in South Africa rather than green lawns, emerald green lawns, don't you? It is hard to get away from, I must say, the minute the, the, the lawns on the promenade start looking the tiniest bit yellow, I'm, you know, tut-tutting, saying what a shame it is. But we simply are going to have to start thinking differently. Now, John, I'm interested in saying that you would love to, ter- to, to turn your backyard into a Zen space. Would you also love to have a Zen space available to you in the workplace? Depends what that Zen space consists of, I think, Rebecca. What would you like it to consist of? I would what would li- help you in the <laughs> I, workplace? I would like it to be a place in which, I don't know, the modern jazz quartet is playing softly and my favorite colors are washing one from the other uh, to me and where there is a slot in the side, which is dispensing 200 rand notes at regular intervals. That does sound quite dreamy and nothing like the Zen booth being rolled out to Amazon workers. This has caused quite a lot of slack online. 
because they're suggesting that there's something, I don't know, I suppose intrinsically depressing about rolling out these Zen boots in your office where people are supposedly underpaid and overworked and the rest of it. And they really are boots. They are the size of telephone boots, it looks like. So the idea is that you, as a stressed Amazon employee, can then shut yourself in one of these booths. And they include a, I assume a seat, although this hasn't actually been mentioned. But a This small is Amazon. Fan. They won't give a seat. <laughs> a small fan. Or if they do give a seat, it'll be an incredibly uncomfortable one, so people don't stay too long in the Zen booth. Or one that you have to assemble yourself, yeah. worst of all. A small fan, several small plants, there you go, and a computer filled with meditative videos. So you could simply put it on. Tom, the reason this actually does appeal to me is because you may not know this about me, but for many a year I worked as a pool waitress at the Mount Nelson Hotel. And unquestionably one of the hardest jobs of my life due to the nature of the guests. We can discuss that on another day. And at regular intervals, we, the waitresses would t- and waiters, would take it in turns to disappear to the stock cupboard to cry, including burly, you know, 18-year-old men who we were working with. We all like to have a little cry at work. And the stock cupboard was the ideal space to do so. And I think that any high-stress work environment should have a place where you can retreat and cry in private. The bathroom is not always a good place because you can run into your box. You know, he says, why are you crying? It's a whole thing. Just somewhere where you can sob by yourself. Every workplace needs one of those. Ah, and I would use it regularly. Thank you very much, Rebecca Davis. There will be another Plan B next week.